Good morning. Happy Mother's Day to everyone here today. Glad that you're here. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open up to Galatians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be picking up today. We have been in this series called Free Swim, and hopefully you've enjoyed it. We've had a lot of conversations and dialogue just in general with people following along on Facebook with the daily devotions, uh, getting some insight there, but also just the overall group time. It's been an incredible series. Hope it's been beneficial for you as well. We started this series, though. I kind of made the statement, though, that um, I've always enjoyed the water. I've always enjoyed swimming. I've, I've always enjoyed, whether it was uh, in a pool or a creek or something like that, I, I, swimming was always something I enjoyed. Uh, and I never was really afraid of swimming uh, and, until I moved to Rockwell City, Iowa. It was my uh, junior high years, and uh, we had this really large public pool. And it was the first time I ever, um, I ever encountered one of these. Do you, do you know what this is? I, I've shown what a, a lane divider or a lap for lap swims for. Do you, do you know what this separates? The shallow to the deep end. Yeah, yeah. So if you get in a pool and you see one of these, what you know is there's a, there's a shallow end and a deep end. So one day uh, I was in the pool, splashing, hanging out, getting my junior high bad self on and having a good time. And uh, all of a sudden I begin to head out and I, I, I encounter one of these ropes. I'd never really seen one before. Never been in a pool large enough. Never really been in an environment like that. And so when I got there, I was like, what's this for? And um, one of my friends just simply said, well, that's that's, that's the deep end, so that people who don't swim, they don't, uh, they don't encounter, you know, things that live in the deep end, you know, they don't, you know, die, you know, somewhere Jaws music begins to play, and all of a sudden, you, you know. so here I am in junior high, and all of a sudden I'm like, the deep end, what is that? And at first I was pretty intimidated by it, but, uh, well, there's something about you, as soon as you realize that there's a shallow end and there's a deep end, that the deep begins to call to you, Right? Like somehow you're missing out. Like, like somehow your cannonballs are insignificant. But in that end, they could be monumental. And if you could learn how to navigate from the shallow end to the deep end, your, your swimming experience could be phenomenal. Well, today we want to talk about this divider, this understanding of the shallow end and the deep end. And you'll, we'll unpack this some more. But when we talk about the shallow end and the deep end, we don't mean it as one as being negative and one being positive. We mean it as one being a beginning point and one being a continuation. One being uh, maybe a novice and one growing into uh, a kind of an, ex uh, an expert level or growing into the fullness of, of that understanding of swimming. When we began to unpack this series, though, we started to talk about just the dynamic of what's happening in this church in the region of Galatia. And we talked about how there was a conflict between some of the Jewish Christians and some of the Gentile Christians. Now, it's not all Jews or all Jewish Christians, but there was a portion of them that was having a real conflict uh, with each other, and it was creating kind of dynamic in, uh, of conflict in Galatia as well as it was happening in Jerusalem. But in week one, we talked about this concept of fake lifeguards, that there are people who understand the rules and the regulations to swimming, but they're not really concerned about creating a great swimming dynamic. They're just trying to enforce rules and be in control. And that's kind of what was happening in this dynamic. So we began to talk about this context of what's playing out in this church at Galatia. Week two, we talked about the lap swim. And while there are times that we want to individually train and develop and get better at our swimming, we understand that they, that begins to clog. It begins to make it difficult to have multiple people in the swimming experience. And so week two, we talked about the confrontation of what was really coming together between some of those Jewish Christians who were trying to control the dynamic of a church that's growing and could be flourishing and the opportunity of what it means to live in the freedom of the life that God's given us. 
Last week, we introduced uh, the idea of floaties, and uh, uh, I'm surprised they found floaties big enough for Daniel's guns. I'll just be real honest. You know, he's a, he's a massive man. But uh, the idea of floaties was just this idea that anything that we put in front of our relationship with Christ, anything that begins to qualify our relationship with Christ is a floaty. And we talked about how that can be, sometimes it can be our heritage, it can be our legacy, it can be, uh, it can be the, the, the rules, the regulations, it can be our family name, it can be a lot of different things. But floaties are not intended to be a part of the relationship with Christ. We should have the confidence to stand in the understanding that it's Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection that invites us in to be a part of this free swim. So today we want to talk about this shallow and this deep end. And we want you to begin to think of it a pool as a giant continuation. That this swimming experience has been happening for generations well before us and will continue for generations after us unless Christ returns soon. So the reality is is that when we look at our faith, we understand that there are some beginning portions of it. But we also know that it is currently becoming a grand crescendo to when Christ returns and we will be ushered into eternity with him. A couple of principles we kind of laid out, though, as guidelines and guardrails for us all to understand in this passage was this, though, that to distort the gospel is to destroy the gospel. And what we meant by that is this, to make it about anything other than the death, burial, and resurrection. That's what the gospel is, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, giving us the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting, that that came through the person of Jesus, being God, being fully God, and being fully man, to distort that to make it about something other than that, to make it about our works or our efforts or our plans or our strategies or our family name or our heritage or how many times we sit in the same row or whatever it is. To distort the gospel is to destroy the gospel. And the idea of the free swim is that God has always been inviting all of humanity, has been extending himself, pursuing us so that we might know his love. And it's an invitation, always been an invitation for all people. The second is this, though. The passion of the gospel then demands we protect the gospel. The passion of the gospel demands that we protect the gospel, meaning that as Christ followers, as people who long to look like Jesus in our everyday life, in the rhythm of our relationships, we should be passionate about this. And when other Christ followers begin to heap on rules or regulations or cultural stipulations or other things around something other than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we really need to call a timeout. We need to call a timeout and stop the train and say, no, 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 no. Let's not make it about us. Let's not make it about our preferences. Let's not make it about our regulations. Let's not make it. Let's keep it at the center of what it is. And it's that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ provides the forgiveness of sins Life everlasting for everyone. And let's fully trust. Let's fully trust and be obedient to everything that God calls us to. So let me just make sure we get this definition clear as we talk about floaties. Because I don't intend it to be uh, an insult or uh, something completely negative. But to remind us that this is sometimes something that we resort back to on a regular basis. And it's not intended to be a regular part of our, our faith and our rhythm. Here's what it is. A floaty is anything added to our faith. For security and qualification of our faith other than Jesus. Sometimes I'll I'll hang out with a friend and I'll say, say, hey, how long have you had a relationship with Jesus Christ? And the first thing they'll say is, uh, well, uh, my grandparents have been going to this church. Now that's a great legacy, isn't it? To grow up in a church where you have multiple generations who have gone to church. But you have to understand that your grandma does not get you into heaven, right? Right? 
Yeah. Uh, she doesn't. And she may be a godly woman. Your parents may be godly people. Your family around you may have a great response to God, but you, you know what secures your relationship with God? The death, the burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. It invites all people into the pool that all of us can experience forgiveness of sins and all of us are given the opportunities for eternal life. And so it's important that we be reminded that it's not our past, it's not our legacy, it's not our wallet, it's not the name on the back of our jersey. It, it, it's Jesus and it's Jesus alone. So there are three questions that we're going to unpack today as we look at, at Galatians chapter 3. And uh, here's what they are, three questions. And so maybe you just want to take the notes on your back, on the back of your sheet and just write and kind of in thirds about where we're going. But uh, here's the three questions that we're going to unpack today. First and foremost, what is the purpose of the law? The reality is this, this message today is kind of part B of where we were last week. Well, what, what's the purpose for it? Why, why is the law even being brought up in Galatians? And why is this even a priority of discussion? So the first is this. What is the purpose of the law? Second is, why was the law even given? What's the purpose of it? Why was it given? But third of all, how do we respond to the law? We understand these things, what its purpose is and why it was given. How do we begin to respond knowing that the law is at play with understanding who our faith is and, and how we've come to be who we are. Now, the truth of the matter is, I want you to see this as a continuum. One of the most beautiful things about being a Christ follower is knowing that, first and foremost, Jesus Christ was Jewish, right? Jesus Christ was Jewish. He lived out uh, Jewish law. He lived out Jewish habits. He lived out Jewish ceremonies. Uh, he came from a legacy of Jews. It is from the Jewish people, the Hebrews, that God had promised, they, we talk about this from Abraham, that the entire nation would become a, a nation of blessing. It would be a blessing to all nations. And that from, that from that family would come the Messiah, would become the one who would make the payment for all of us in our lives. So we have to understand that we have a beginning point, and we'll call that the shallow end, not because it's the poor end, the bad end, the negative end. It's the shallow end because in the continuum of the story and narrative of God, it's the beginning point that all of us have experienced on some level. It has shaped humanity. It's been the narrative that has set up the very understanding that there is a place in our life because of Jesus and that Jesus has become that sacrifice. But we now live on the other side of this. We live, now live post the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we now know there is a new covenant, a new arrangement, a new life that we're being called towards. Now, I'm not a person who loves to talk about history a lot, but we're going to unpack a little bit of history and a little bit of the journey that comes to the background of this so we can understand some of the richness of this passage and what's happening to these individuals and the church that we're a part of. First question is this, what is the purpose of the law? Here's what it says in verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. That doesn't sound good. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of law. Clearly, no one relies on the law, uh, is, is justified by God, before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law, is not, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or on, on a tree, cross. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is a powerful passage. 
The listeners of the day, that early church in Galatia, would have begun to understand that they, many of them have been living out in the shallow end. The understanding of it, it's the beginning portion. It's the foundation of history. It's where things have started from. Very few of us ever really just completely dive into the deep end. And so they understand that there's this progression. And if you grew up with a Jewish, Jewish perspective, you lived in an end where you longed for the other end to appear, meaning you lived in a shallow end, anticipating the day when a Messiah would come and would usher in a new life. That Messiah has come, what these Christians have rallied around is that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and he is now the fulfillment of first things. Oftentimes when we talk about the Old Testament, many of us will refer to it as the the First Testament. So when you have your Bible, you'll look at it for a moment. Maybe it defines in its table of contents the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is the first testament that laid the foundation and the narration of us needing a Savior for the entrance of Jesus into the world. And the New Testament shares his story and then begins to speak about how the church flourishes and how the people of God live out the very mission of Jesus himself. You understand what I'm saying? Shallow end, deep end. Beginning point, maturation. This is the narrative of God as seen through a Christian worldview. But we can be confused when we look at that and we wrestle with, well, what's even the point of this? Why do we need to understand this? And here's here's one of the things we need to understand about the law is that the law points out our needs. The law points out our needs. Through the law, we are reminded that we need a Savior. We are reminded that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We recognize that the wages of our sin is death. We recognize that we are not the God of this world, but that there is a God, the person of Jesus, the one who gave himself, being fully God and fully man, gave himself, and he fulfilled all the sacrifices of the First Testament, all the ceremonies of the First Testament. He became the sacrifice of all sacrifices, so that we would not have to endure the wrath of God. The second thing we learn is this, though. The law points out to something greater. Not only does it remind us of our needs, but it points to something greater. When addressing the people of Galatia, Paul is speaking as a Jewish Christian. He understands what it means to come from Jewish heritage. He understands the ceremonies. He understands the sacrifices. He knows as much as anyone else the context by which many of these people are now coming forward as Jewish Christians and yet wanting to impose the First Testament, the laws, the ceremonies, the way of living Jewishly onto these new Christians. He understands their ethnicity. He understands their legacy. But he's trying to help them gain perspective because the law had always been pointing to what they were now living. The law had always been telling them that God would send one on their behalf to be the sacrificial lamb. That person, Jesus, came, and now we're moving forward. The former things have been fulfilled. We are now moving to a final goal, a crescendo an opportunity where eternity will be opened up and we will be the people of God. Now, what he's alluding to in most of this book is he's beginning to talk about, excuse me, Genesis chapter 15. And in Genesis chapter 15, we get introduced to a man named Abraham. It's credited to Abraham as righteousness because of his faith. He is the father of Israel. 
And what's interesting is God approaches him and says, you, you will have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky and sands on the seashore. It's hard for me to say that over and over again. Stars in the sky and the sands of the seashore. Now, that's a big family reunion, wouldn't you say? So he gets this idea that his family, his legacy is going to be massive in its influence and opportunity. But the purpose of that family and influence is one, to be a blessing to all nations. So that the whole world might know the grace, the love, the grandeur of God. They would be the agents of grace in a world that had not met the one true God. They would be the ones to usher in God's love. They would be the ones to set the foundation for Jesus. In Genesis 17, though, Abraham makes the the commitment. God has made his covenant that he will be a blessing and he will impact the world for his glory. And then he asks Abraham to take on the covenant of circumcision. And there Abraham commits as a grown man to circumcise himself, every man in his household, and every man born from that point on. I'm thankful the First Testament is fulfilled, aren't you? Man, there should be some men in this room that go, amen, you know, because I don't need to go there. But here's here's what Paul's trying to help us understand, is that faith has always been the foundation of how we live out our life. It began with Abraham, and it's fulfilled through Jesus. And so he's trying to create an equation. He's trying to get them to see the shallow end and the deep end for how they come together and how they're pointing towards a crescendo. So here's the equation you can write down. If you want to you get a real quick, brief understanding of what Galatians is trying to say, it's this. That first came faith. That Abraham was fully obedient, giving, trusting fully in God, and living out his life of faith. And that ushered in the law. The law comes, we understand the Ten Commandments, comes through Moses. It is the definition of their relationship, the kind of people that they're going to be. And then the other books of law begin to describe all the other ways of ceremony and lifestyle and all the different things, how the Jewish nation would live out their life. And everything of that law was intended to be a foundation to encourage our faith, but to point to our need for a Messiah. When Jesus came and gave his life, died, was buried, rose again, gave us the power of forgiveness and life everlasting, it ushered in faith in a sense of freedom free from all the things that were fulfilled in the first testament so that we might live fully the new covenant of our relationship with Christ. I love what John Stott says this. There is then, it is safe to say, no Christianity without the cross. If the cross is not central to our religion, ours is not the religion of Jesus. John Stott reminds us that it's that watershed moment that becomes the line from the shallow end to the deep end that defines that this is who we were, this is who we are becoming, so that we might be for all of eternity. That's what it's intended to give us, to help us understand. So what's the point of all this? Two things. From the beginning of time, first and foremost, we are included in the family. God has always had the intention to include all people in his family. We read through uh, the history of the nation of Israel through, through this understanding and the stories of the, the people, the Hebrews. And they were always intended to be a blessing, to usher in the Messiah, to, to, to be transforming to the world around it, to let people know the one true God. And it was always intended to influence every tribe, tongue, and nation. Ultimately, through the person of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. Second of all, that we would receive the Spirit. 
We receive the Spirit of God. Notice that Spirit is uh, it's capitalized. So it's talking about the nature and the character of God. It's saying His Holy Spirit. So two things are intended. We're intended to be included in the family. And just as we understood through Abraham, all families, all, all nations, tribes, and people are included to be in this family. And we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Well, throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and it would move on people. It would impact situations. It would empower people for a moment. But the Holy Spirit did not reside in believers in the Old Testament. Do you realize that? It's not till the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that we begin to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Meaning if you, by faith, surrender your life back to God, you are promised this gift. Not just of eternal life, not just of forgiveness of sins, but that the Holy Spirit would live in you, empower you, equip you, transform you, and change you into the likeness of Jesus. Now some of you are like, well, that's, that's, that's pretty weird. I, this same spirit, what, what do you mean? Well, as, as Scripture would say, the same spirit, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is now alive in you. Now, I, I'll just be honest with you. Uh, some of you may say, I, I don't have that spirit. You may have that spirit. And, and I look at people, and clearly I see people who are impacted in greater ways by Jesus. But every single one of us, every single one of us, believers in Jesus, are given the same Holy Spirit. Now, an interesting thing happened in my life when I began to become who I wanted to be for the rest of my life. Now, I grew up in a home that was filled with mostly Christians on my dad's side. And so praying and be a part of religious things, so to speak, was not new to us. But when I chose to go to a Christian university to go into ministry, do you know who got asked at every holiday to pray for every meal? I did. Yeah. I was like, okay, whatever. I, I can do that. You know, I'm, I, whatever. I, I'll do it. Now, then I got into ministry. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe things will be different when I go to your house. But you know what? When I go to your house and I go out to dinner with you, do you know who you asked to pray? Me. Why? Well, some of you, I, honestly, I think some of you think I have the red phone to Jesus. You know, like I can, I can dial up something like your service at the restaurant is going to be better because I'm sitting with you. It's not that way. But you have the same Holy Spirit in your life. You have the same empowerment of God in your life. If you have surrendered your life back to God, you have the same power of God in your life that I have. What may make it different for me and for you and for others, there are people that I look to that have incredible faith. And I'm, I'm just so, I'm just so me. I'm just, I'm not much. Some of it may be because of my own rebellion. Some of it may be because I've not let God mature that in me yet. And some of that may be because God hasn't asked me to live that life either. Our goal is not to define ourselves by where everybody else is. Our goal is to live out this spirit, understanding that all of us, given the same spirit, the same forgiveness, the same empowerment of God. So the second question comes out something like this. Why are we given the law? If this is all pointing to this, that's the purpose. Then why, why are we given the law, even right here and right now? Let's read what it says in Galatians 3, starting in verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed, meaning Jesus, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels or messengers and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. 
For if the law had been been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. One of the things we learn very quickly about this tension between the law and the gospel is this. The law tells us that we are more wicked than we would dare to believe, but the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives new life, tells us that we are more loved and we are more accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. See, what's interesting, Paul is trying to really lay out this understanding of what qualifies children of Abraham, what defined Abraham and his life. Abraham was defined by his faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was a man of faith, not considered a man of circumcision. And what's happening is we are overemphasizing over in this young church the ceremonies, the cultures, the things of the former over this idea of faith. But faith is what ushered in the law. And the law is what pointed to the need for Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all law so that we might have freedom, we might have faith to fully obey and fully trust God. Here's the big idea. The law reminds us we need Jesus. That's what the law is completely about. It's to remind us that we need Jesus. Listen to what Galatians 3 says in verse 23. Before the coming of faith, we are held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. That's Jesus we're talking about. So the law was our guardian until Christ, Jesus, came that we might be justified by faith. So how do we respond to this? When we begin to realize that there is a line that separates the shallow and the deep, that the deep is the way of Jesus, and Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the watershed moment. It's the line in the pool. We begin to realize that in the story of our history, we are now headed towards a grand crescendo built, built on the same foundation that we swim in, in the shallow end, in the beginning end, but fuels us forward into a life of faith. How do we respond? Here's what, here's what Paul challenges every one of them. The Jewish Christians, the Galatians Christians, he wants to help them gain perspective on what now unifies them and why they are who they are. Here's what it says, starting in verse 25. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Okay? So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you, were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. Therefore, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So let me, let me get this. Generations before you were ever a smile in your mother's eye, before you ever had a moment to even think about what your life would be today, generation before generation before generation, we could do this hundreds of times over. God intended 
that the narrative of history would come through this man, Abraham, that the law would be ushered in to help remind us of our needs, our longings for who we are and our longings for Jesus. God himself, Jesus, both man and God, gave his life, died a death on a cross, gives us freedom to follow after him. We are now seen in that same family line. In a spiritual sense, Abraham is your great, 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 grandfather, spiritually speaking. You're part of the same history that the great stories of old come from, of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, of David slaying the giant. Your history tree comes because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul gives two pictures, two pictures to help everyone look forward to the mission of what Jesus is trying to create. And the first picture he gives is baptism. He says, just as, in essence, circumcision was the early mark for the first covenant, we now share a unifying mark in baptism. That we would be buried in the waters of baptism. We have a baptistry out front. We practice buried in the waters of baptism we, that you, you identify with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, you are now clothed in the likeness of Christ. Meaning all the things that could identify you, all the things that could label you, all the things that could shape you in different ways, when you're seen, what, Jesus, what God sees is the forgiveness of Jesus. No matter your past, no matter your present, when Jesus sees you, those who, of us who have surrendered our lives by faith back to Jesus, when God sees us, we're clothed in the likeness of Jesus. Isn't that powerful? But the second picture, he says this, is a picture of equality. One of the dynamics that's happening in the Galatian church is that the culture of the day is trying to trump the context of Jesus, the character of Jesus. They were in somewhat of a caste system. Men were rewarded more than women. Certain ethnic groups had more power than others. Slave owners had more power than slaves. And Paul brings everybody in and says, hey, this, hey, 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 hey. If you've given your life to Christ, do you know what you're, you're battling for? You know what you're standing for? You're standing for equality. So no longer do husbands have the right to oppress their wives or to influence their home for only their credit and their glory. They're seen as equal. No longer can bosses and slave owners oppress others and take advantage of others for their benefit. No, you're, you now attend a church where you're both considered equal. No longer is there division by the color of your skin, the background of your ethnicity, one doesn't have strength of the other. Not only are you considered equal, but you are now the champions for equality in a world that enjoys labels and enjoys systems and structures. You become a movement of people that those who were in power humble themselves and those who had no power are brought up. Those who are neglected and avoided in our, in our society are brought in and included and empowered because the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ crushes those systems. Do you understand what that should mean for our church? Do you understand what that should mean for us as 
those who have been clothed in the likeness of Christ. We are the agents of grace for the world that we're a part of. We are the agents of, a, of justice where there is no justice. We are the ones who stand in the gap where there is ethnic and racial tension. We are the ones that stand in the moments where households are known by, by division and by power struggles. We become the ones that step out and we defend that what we fight for and what we stand on is the death, the burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ and that alone. No matter how much is in your wallet, no matter the name on the back of your jersey, no matter the political affiliation you may hold, no, nothing defines us except Jesus. And it is enough to, equate, to, to give us equality, to value us above everything else. So let's, let's move to our time of response. So we lay out this conversation, and we have two more conversations out of the book of Galatians. We start looking at this, and how many times are we going to get this, this message to us? I know, Danny, it's the death, the burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the death, the burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the death, burial. I, I get that. I get that. That's what I get that. And I want to say, no, we don't. We live in a world that's full of injustice. <laughs> we live in a world that shouts and screams. We live in a world that defines and tears people apart. And if we took measurement of ourselves, if we looked around the room and we said, does our church look like our community? We would have to say at best, kind of. Kind of. We have some people that maybe in this room, maybe, maybe you've had a really hard past. You, you, you majored in sin. Okay, we all have. We may have a, a broad stroke of, uh, of financial backgrounds in this room. You know, I go to my kids' music programs. And I, we're, we're, a part of, uh, we're a part of Centennial Public Schools. I'm proud of it. And when I walk in there, it's much different than what it looks like here. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, every background, all sorts of people, who, some who may be wealthy, some who may be poor. And I look at our schools sometimes and I go, Jesus called for heaven on earth. Revelation talks about how when we go to heaven, it's going to be every tribe, tongue, and nation. And sometimes I think what we think as an American church, there's going to be like our crowd, their crowd, somebody else's crowd. And, and I don't think that's what's happening in the globalization of the crescendo of the gospel. I think we would just be one. Not black or white. Not rich or poor not man or woman, but everyone would belong. So we pause at every service to, to offer people a chance to, to make a decision of faith, maybe to accept Christ, maybe surrender their lives, to, to, to be obedient and follow in the ways of baptism. Some of you will take your connection card and you'll place it in the response boxes, the offering boxes, and we'll follow up and we'll have conversations and We'll live that faith out. 
But for many of us in this time, we kind of take this time of response and we just go, okay, so I'm gonna take communion. Uh, maybe I'll pray for a little bit and I'll give my offering. And we need to pause on this because these elements are not just something to do. They're something that should transform us. That if we, if we pause in prayer today, if we bend our knee at these benches and we say, God, move in us, that we would be willing to not only say, God, how would you change us? But God, what do I need to correct? The reason Paul's message is so powerful is because the same segregations that, in, that, that lived thousands of years ago before we even got on this earth are still active today. It, be, it behooves us as Christ followers to not only say, God, how would you use me? But God, where do I, where do I need to repent? Have I been a great boss? Have I been a humble father? Have I treated people differently because of how much money they do have or don't have? Have I reacted differently to individuals because of their color of skin? Our prayer in these times is we take the bread and we take the juice. We eat the bread and drink the juice, be reminded of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not only that we would come to a time of remembrance, but maybe also come to a time of repentance. Because what God is saying through Galatians is, we're one. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is that we are now one. And may we be agents of that grace, that love, that compassion, that justice. And may we as the people of God be just like Jesus. Let's stand. We're going to respond in this time. And um, I pray that as this music begins to build, as the crescendo begins to take off, that God compels you to look at your own life and to be more like Christ.